This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4. And the last time in chapter 3 we looked at the superiority of Christ over Moses. As we take each successive chapter, we're learning why Christ is so superior, why we should worship him, uh, why we should believe so strongly in him as our Messiah. And we looked at three points of how Jesus Christ was superior over Moses. Now on the third point, we looked at the type of rest that Moses offered, which we're going to go into, versus the type of rest that Jesus Christ offered. And this chapter is going to really exemplify that rest. Uh, and I'll tell you, you know, when you're fatigued emotionally, you're fatigued physically, uh, you know, even as believers, sometimes we're just like, oh, gee, you know, you just have that sigh. And, and you just, the word rest is so appealing. So as we go through the scripture, this chapter, we're going to look at the rest that God offers to us. And, uh, you know, he's going to, again, continuing on that theme. So Hebrews chapter 4 says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, meaning back in the days of the children of Israel. All right, so the author of Hebrews is speaking in the first century. He's looking back to the wilderness wanderings, but also David, in between those two time eras, David authors Psalm 95, and he reiterates uh, that we shouldn't, the people of God should not be hardening their hearts as they did in the rebellion, but if they hear his voice, that they would enter into his rest. So we, we have a few different time periods that we're going to look at, and of course we all want to know in 2013 on the East Coast, how does this apply to me? So indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, and this comes back from Psalm 95, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and this comes from Genesis 2, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, back to Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, again Psalm 95, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you're a little confused, don't worry, we're going to make sense of it. I actually had to go back into my Greek translation. This isn't an easy letter to understand. His audience was far different than ours. It was culturally different. Um, they, they were more versed in the Old Testament. So it, it can come off a little choppy, but we're going to make sense of it all. Now, therefore, we're going to go back chapter 3, last Sunday. What did we see? We saw that there were those that were in the community of God's people, but they were dead to the things of God. They were drifting. They were hard-hearted. They had disbelief, they were in open rebellion, and it ultimately led in them being precluded from entry into the promised land under Moses. Actually, it, it, they were entered under Joshua because Moses couldn't even get in. But worse, the children of Israel were used as a warning to the Hebrew Christians about not getting into God's ultimate rest, which would be that rest in Jesus Christ. So this rest in Christ is far better. 
Now, we quote, quoted Romans 9, 6. It says, it is not as though God's word failed. God's word never fails. It's powerful. It always accomplishes its purposes. But it says, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And I also made the application last Sunday. We've got to go back and, and give a little you know, buffer. I spoke about being part of the body of Christ versus being among the body of Christ. And there's a big difference. People come to church for various reasons. But are we among, just among the body of Christ, or are we part of the body of Christ? We all have a function. We all have gifts. We all ask God how to exercise those gifts. Now, when we say things like this, it's not to chastise or it's not to uh, exclude. It's actually to include. Why does God give so many warnings? Because he's a mean God? No. It's because he doesn't want us to go in the wrong path. So if we feel convicted this morning by some of these things, it's not so that we leave depressed, it's so we, we, we leave encouraged that God wants me to be a part of the body of Christ. Again, I've talked about in today's era where the focus is more on the building and the experience than the people. Right? And, and, and there's, there's been a great shift over the last 2,000 years, and it shouldn't be that way. Now at this point, it probably bears repeating the different types of rest, and I'll call this the rest continuum from original to where we are today and beyond. So the first one is, because to understand this letter, we've got to understand what he's saying here. First is physical rest, and we'll see this in verse 4. God rested on the Sabbath, and he gave that rest to the Jews. And certainly, it would behoove us today, we weren't made, made to work seven days a week. I've been there, done that. And if you've done that, you'll realize at some point you burn out. God didn't make us in this form to last forever. So we need to rest. Our body needs to recuperate. So there's physical rest. The second rest, I've called it environmental rest for lack of a better word. It has nothing to do with the EPA. Okay? Environmental rest meaning your surroundings. As spoken of in the promised land. The third rest is a spiritual rest or a salvation rest. This was the rest that all the rests all the rests in the Old Testament pointed to, that salvation rest in Christ. And for the final rest, not like RIP, you know, that they put on the tombstones, rest in peace, but when we die as believers, we don't die. We actually step from this realm into the spiritual realm. We rest from our labors. We're in heaven with God. Okay? Um, we have hope. We don't, we're not rotting in the ground. That's not what happens to a believer. All of who we are, our essence, goes to be with the Lord. And we finally rest. It's a nice thing to look forward to. Now, we can also look at the rest of obedience or the rest of the fullness in Christ. Instead of doing it in our own strength as Christians, we let God do all the heavy lifting and we work alongside of him. We don't get ahead of him. And I'll leave one more rest for the end, which I think you'll be blessed by. So he says, therefore, in other words, knowing what we know of the promises of God, the author of Hebrews says, don't fall short of it. Now, woven in Hebrews is the theme of man's responsibility. So we look at different books in the Bible and some Bible, and this is where that whole Calvinist versus Arminianist debate comes in, where the hyper-Calvinists are all about sovereignty and, and you don't even have any free will, you can't choose, which is, of course, not true. It's an extreme versus the Arminian position where it's all about us. But there's a, really a balance between God's sovereignty and between our free will. So here, we may be convicted when we read this. I was, as I studied it. 
because a lot has to do with my responsibility to keep up my end of the bargain in the relationship. It's like any relationship. So, man's responsibility. The barrier to any of God's blessings, hear this, is never on God's end. God has a storehouse of blessings for us. But the question is, do we want it or do we not want it? Do we want to chase after things of the world or do we want God's blessing? Right? Whether it's the unsaved and seeking him or the saved and realizing their full potential, the barrier to God's blessings is on our end, not his. We're his children. He loves us. He wants to pour out his blessings upon us. And verse 2, he speaks about, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. The full gospel was preached in the Old Testament. I was talking to Pastor Jason, a friend of mine, um, Pastor's Calvary Chapel, New Brunswick, good brother, and he was telling me, we were talking about this, and he was telling me about a true story about a Chinese exchange student, didn't know a whole lot of English, and a Christian professor. And the professor gave him an English-Chinese Bible translation. This kid was not a Christian. He reads through three-quarters of the Old Testament, calls up the professor, and says, when is he coming? And the professor goes, what are you talking about? He goes, I read three-quarters of the Old Testament. When is the Messiah coming to bring salvation? And he was able to lead him to the Lord based on partially reading the Old Testament. So the gospel was preached to the Jews. They understood to look forward to that salvation rest in the Messiah. That's very exciting. But the question is, Matthew 13, what kind of soil is our heart? The parable of the soils, when the gospel is preached, do we receive it? Do we have stony hearts? Do we have hearts that receive it initially, but then the cares of the world come and, and choke out the fruitfulness of the word, as, the, as Matthew 13 says? It must be mixed with faith. We have to believe. Now, Romans 10:17 says this. I love this. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing comes by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It's regenerative. But the question is, will we listen long enough to it for it to work on our hearts, to, to regenerate our hearts as unbelievers, as believers, to gain that strength and that power from and guide our lives. Back in those days, their hearts were hard. They heard the truth, but their hearts were hard soil. Don't let that happen to us this morning. If you don't know the Lord, are you willing to continue to listen with an open mind and an open heart? Or did somebody just kind of drag you in here and you're just kind of going through the motions? Open your heart this morning. Let it be good and fertile soil, as, as the Bible tells us. Verse 3. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter. Two groups here. Although the works were finished for, from the foundation of the world. Remember, the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95, penned by David, and there was a dichotomy between those who entered his rest and those who didn't. And the proviso, the stipulation, was faith or belief. And what that says is that God expects us to exercise faith. The Bible tells us the word of God helps us to increase our faith. The Bible tells us that God gives us a measure of faith and that he can increase our faith. But we can believe. And we're going to talk about obstinate disbelief. That's a good part. Hebrews 11.6 says this, I love this. It says, without faith it is impossible to please God. 
For he who comes to God must believe two things. Number one, that he is, that he exists. Here's the funny thing. Some atheists have 50% of this. They do believe that he exists, but they can't stand him. I'm going to read a little bit of an article about somebody who went through that. The second part is the most important part, is that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is ready to reward you when you diligently seek him? Do you? Excellent. Excellent. So, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, God established a way to him from the beginning because he knew the failure of man. See, God has a provision for every failure and difficulty in our lives. You know, I love going out into the world and just talking to strangers. <laughs> I'm one of those strange people like that. I know Fred does that in the Wawa. Uh, but it's a blessing. Also, some of you know Fred. <laughs> but it, it's neat to go out and talk to strangers and, and just have conversations with them. And this week I was blessed with talking to two people. And they were talking about their failures. They were talking about their tattoos. They were talking about their personal lives. They were talking about their addictions. And this was a barrier for them to come to church. And I said, don't try to get cleaned up before you come to church. God has provided every provision for something that you think you did wrong that precludes you from coming to church and mingling with other people of, of faith. So my, my, I was trying to encourage was a, Two different people, two different situations. He has a provision for everything we've done wrong. Everybody in church isn't clean and perfect. We're still sinners. But we know where to go with our sin. That's the difference. We know where to go when we're in want. So he has provided, he understands us, a provision for every one of our failures. Verse 4. Again, he says, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this place they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The beauty of when you read something and it says today, no matter what day you read it, it's always applicable. Right? You read it today, you read it 2,000 years ago, and you say today, it's still today. That's the beauty of today. So today may be for some of you this morning. Verse 4, of course, we talked about comes from Genesis 2. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He set all things in motion, and he desires rest for his people. However, there were those excluded from his rest. Why? Because God doesn't like certain people? No, because of themselves. It says, because of disobedience. Now, that can also be translated. This is very important. I love this. Disobedience can be translated in the Greek as obstinate disbelief. Obstinate disbelief. Let me give you an example. Sometimes we have an attitude when we see things that are real, and we know it's true, but we have a personal bend, or we have an emotional issue, or we have a heart issue, and we don't want to believe it. I can only liken it to... Uh, you know, hey, listen, our kids are very close to us. Maybe spouse, loved one. Maybe our kids, we get a call from the principal and he says, hopefully we never hear this, I found contraband in your kid's locker. And the parent goes there and they're vehemently arguing. They can see the evidence, they can see all the information, they can see the eyewitnesses, not my kid. It's an obstinate disbelief. Or 
if your kid, if you get a phone call and we have your kid down at the station, he committed a, a felony or a crime and there's a videotape of it, they can look at the videotape and still say, not my kid. Right? Maybe some of us has done that. But that's an obstinate disbelief. We have the facts in front of us. The children of Israel saw the parting of the Red Sea. I can just, you know, I have a vivid imagination walking through the dry land and seeing all the fish and walls of water. I mean, wow, check this out. They saw it, but they had an obstinate disbelief. They have a hardening of the heart. Now, some may say, not my kid. Others may say, yeah, that's my kid. You don't have to show me any evidence. But verse 7 it says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. This is said three times in two chapters. Obstinate disbelief. Now, what does this mean? It means, again, it's convicting. It means, but you can help this. You can change. You can open your heart. You can open your spiritual eyes, as we talked about last Sunday. I mean, there's a lot of things that we don't see, but we believe. Who denies that electricity exists? Anybody? Well, if you, if you deny it, I'll take you to the outlet, and we could put two, two wires in there, touch them together, and you'll, trust me, you'll believe that electricity exists. I mean, who here has seen their own brains? Do we deny that all of us in this room have brains? Now, for years, I was told that I didn't have one until I got an MRI, and it proved. <laughs> I actually saw it. So I know it's there, but I believed it was there before I saw the MRI. There's a lot of things. You're all sitting on these pews. You look very relaxed. How do you know the builder built them right? How do you know it's not going to collapse in front of you? Every, you? You guys sit in the same spot every Sunday, right? You, you don't look worried to me. They're laughing and smiling and moving around and shaking their legs, and the pew's not coming down. There's something that you don't see, but you believe that it's, it's doing something, Okay? The folly of unbelief. Uh, I have an article. Remember Brian Bosworth, the football player? Really arrogant, really, you know, driven type of guy. Well, for years, I guess you could say he was an atheist. He had uh, an experience and he became a born-again Christian. Now he acts in, in Christian movies. But he says... It's not that I didn't know God. Remember when he was living that lifestyle. Big parties, probably drugs, probably girls, probably the whole thing. He had endless amounts of cash. He says, it is not that I did not go know God or didn't have a relationship or an understanding of God. I knew the Lord. I just hated him. Good article. Here's a, some would say, well, he's an atheist or he's this or he's that. He says, no, I knew God existed. I just hated him. And he made his peace with the Lord later on in life, and now his life has completely changed. I look at the atheist monument in Florida that they just put up next to the Ten Commandments. This is great. An organization, a bunch of atheists got together and spent $6,000 of their own money to put an a, a, a monument next to the, new te, uh, the, the Ten Commandments we're going to show you, God, that you don't exist. Every time somebody looks at your Ten Commandments, they're going to see our monument. $6,000, what a waste of money. The lengths that people will do because of obstinate disbelief. Ken, you observe the facts in front of you and you talk yourself out of it. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, remember he led the children of Israel into the promised land, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Joshua spoke of another day, another day of rest. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. 
For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And I've talked about this before. Old Testament type, typology. We see something, it's veiled, it's mysterious, don't completely understand it. In the New Testament, it's a, it's a revelation. It's an unveiling. It's a mysterion, something that was formerly hidden in meaning, but in the New Testament is explained. So these rests were like people enjoyed the rest. They enjoyed the land of milk and honey. They enjoyed taking a rest on the Sabbath day, but they didn't completely understand what it was going to point them to, that salvation rest that Joshua said, this isn't it. There's something better coming down the road. Just a few points here, ceasing from works and resting. Number one, God ceased from his works. On the seventh day, he rested. The Lord Jesus ceased from his works on the cross when he said, it is finished. And he seated at the right hand of the Father, sat down, a picture of rest, and makes intercession for you and I, for everyone in this room. Three, we cease from our works and we rest when we enter that salvation rest as born-again believers. Why do we stop working? Because you can't work your way into heaven. It is not of works. It is grace. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Jesus did all the heavy lifting. And sometimes, even as believers, we need to rest. We can get ahead of him. Now, I know in this place, I have a few type A's. <laughs> and I might be one of them. And we have to tell ourselves, you know what? I've got to do it in God's strength. When we, when we run too far ahead of God and we're working, we realize that there's problems. There's difficulties. Okay? When we're saved, we cease from our works. But also there's an obedient rest. I will do it in God's strength. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. And when we're finding it's a burden, we're probably not doing it in his strength. 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience or obstinate disbelief. So we see different groups of people. We see the writer of Hebrews, first century, 1,500 years prior, children of Israel in the wilderness. Sometime between that 1,500 years and the first century was David, penning right around circa 1,000 B.C., maybe a little bit more, penning Psalm 95. So you see the wilderness believers, David's generation, the first century Hebrew Christians, and also it resonates the same with us today. The same message resonates with us today. Our rest is significantly more wonderful because it's a, a salvation rest. It's a spiritual transformation. Now, the word labor can also mean to endeavor, to make an effort, or to be earnest. Pastor Joe, didn't you just say that we're supposed to rest? Now we're talking about labor. Two different things here. When you're having a struggle in your marital relationship, a good counselor will tell you, now there's going to be some work involved here. You need to be diligent. Some lines of communication have been severed. I, I love that. I love making the comparison between a marriage relationship, because the Bible does that. We are his bride collectively, and a human relationship. Of course, our spouse is perfect in, in the heavens. So when there's a fault, it's usually on, well, it's not usually, it's always on our end, right? So we're diligent as a couple that's in trouble in their relationship 
and they're being asked to be diligent and not lazy, to labor and not lazy, to work at that relationship. And we all have to admit there's times in our lives that we can be slothful towards the Lord. We can be disobedient. We can just have general malaise or um, you know, lack of, of, of diligence. It's the most important relationship that we have on this side of eternity. Twelve. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, this is important, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We have to speak about, when we talk about the word of God, in the Old Testament, it was the voice of God. It's the same thing. God, in a different dispensation, talks to us in different ways. We covered that in the first chapter of Hebrews. He speaks to us now by his son. The, the word of God, the Bible, is his will, his thoughts, his purpose, and desires for us. And it cuts through all the facades, the lies, and the excuses that we make. This is a, a slicing, spiritual slicing that's going on. Why is it, it placed here? Because we're discussing God's voice, God's word, and our heart. These are the two things at issue. Our heart, what type of ground our heart is, God's voice and God's word. And we have to make the nexus because his voice and his word needs to penetrate into our heart. But are we putting up barriers? Well, when I, you know, I, I'd like to come to the Lord, but you know, I have friends and they're, they're going to laugh at me. I'd like to come in the Lord, but you know, if I come home, I don't know what's going to happen with my spouse. We start to put up barriers and we start to talk ourselves out of it because we think of the ramifications, what will happen when we go home and go back into our regular life. It's not going to be easy, but this is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. The sword, in the Greek, the word is makara. The word makara was a general example of a sword. This sword could have been, I did a little research, it could have been the Roman gladius. The Roman gladius was about this long. It had a short handle on it. It was understood as a medium-range sword. It had an incredibly sharp point on it, and it was, it was finely honed on a double edge. You didn't want to get cut with this thing. You might get cut and not even know it. It would sever the nerves cleanly. This sword was used in battle. The Bible tells us that we battle with the word of God. We use it. We don't fight against flesh and blood. Other religions, you know, fanatical religions do this. They, you see it all the time. People are killing each other all the time in the name of religion. God, Christ didn't call us to do that. Our battle is a spiritual battle. We use the word of God. This sword, this gladius, was used in defense of wild animals. We can use the word of God in defending themselves, in defending ourselves from onslaughts when people attack us personally. Three, this sword was used to butcher fresh kill. It was extremely sharp. And the word of God separates things where we try to conglomerate everything together. God's word, when you read it, and we're going to talk about it, how it cuts things and makes a nice fine dichotomy so that we can understand it and take it in digestible parts spiritually when we assimilate it. So, a few things. Number one, it's living and powerful. It's full of life. God's word gives life. It's regenerative. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It regenerates the soul, the lost soul. It makes a dead soul alive. 
God's voice also spoke creation into existence, all the way back in Genesis. It's also powerful. The word in Greek is energes, where we get the word energetic from. It's not just words on the page. If you're familiar with Mosab, Hassan, Yusuf, son of Hamas, he read one verse in the New Testament, and his life changed. He left, you know, the, um, the Hamas. He, he completely stopped his... He, he knew he was a terrorist, stopped hurting people. He completely gave his life to the Lord. One verse. I want to read something to you in Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. Even in the Old Testament, it says the same thing. Two verses. It says, As the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void or empty, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. Sometimes we think that we're witnessing to somebody or we're trying something or you know, we're using the Word of God and by all observable empirical data, we don't see anything happening. But God doesn't do everything in the snap of a finger. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it takes a long time to, to melt a hard heart. Right? Two, it says, dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Now this is important because God's Word, when it cuts, it makes the distinction we're three in one. We're mind, we're body, and we're spirit. And sometimes they get jumbled together. And there's a lot of untruths in Christianity today. We're in the age of information. We're in the age of spin. Everybody can put up a website, make it look like something. Um, you, you don't know who's telling the truth anymore. It gets confusing after a while. But the Word of God will tell us. When we read the Word of God, it tells us, number one, what's a true experience from the Holy Spirit or what's just a whipped-up frenzy? Sometimes the mind, you know, you get the hair that stands up on the back of your, your neck and you get all excited and emotional. Is that really from the Holy Spirit? God's Word can tell you if it is or if it isn't. Test all things with Scripture. Test the spirits, the Bible says. Number two, the Word of God will tell us if that new New York Times best-selling Christian book is of God or if it's not. There's a lot of garbage media out there. That people are just looking to sell. Hey, New York Times bestseller, I can sell this and make a profit. The Word of God will tell you when you read that book, something clicks and you say, mm -mm, I'm reading this and I know what I've been taught with the Word. Something is not lining up here. God gives you a check in your spirit. Three, it'll tell you what church teaching, is it the truth or is it just making you feel good and why? And there's a difference between a spiritual and soulish experience. And this is where two things come really close and it's hard to separate them. The Bible tells us in Matthew, Jesus tells us there'll be a time, there'll be so much deception that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. Wow. So that means that there's a really fine line that a lot of people are going to be deceived. And it's really close to God's people being deceived. Is it a soulish experience? It ministers to me. It's, it's in here. It's emotional. Or is it a spiritual experience? Only God's Word will tell you. And some will argue with you. You'll show them, no, 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 no. That's wrong. This is what the Scripture says. Well, I know what the Scripture says, but I know what I felt. Have you ever heard that from people? Difference between a spiritual experience and a soulish experience. 
This is why Calvary Chapel teaches verse by verse. I tell you, if I wanted to deceive you at this point, I could not. If you've been here long enough, and some, some pastors do, you've been taught way too well by this pastoral staff. We all use the Word of God. And that's, that's a credit. We only use the Bible. If every pulpit used the Bible as a main course, there'd be less denominationalism, less bickering, less pet doctrines that Christianity fights amongst each other. Um, entire denominations would have to change the way they do business if they use the Word of God as their standard. And that's what separates us. The third thing, it, it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is why God's Word is used in growth and discipleship. Because some things have to be sloughed off. You know, what's really at the heart? Why do I feel like this? Why is it that when I try to grow in Christ, I keep falling at the same point? Sometimes we have to look at the root of what's going on and see why we're doing this. Why do we keep stumbling? The Word of God can reveal that. That's why it's used in counseling. And it also discerns motives. Why do people serve at all? Why do they volunteer? Why do they want to be in ministry? Because they couldn't make it in the world? Are they serving to be seen for a financial benefit? Or are they still working their way to heaven because they're, they're ridden with guilt? God's Word, when we understand it, can tell us those things. And the fourth thing, it says, No creature is hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nakedness today is very different from nakedness back then. Back then, if you were naked, you were vulnerable. You were exposed. You were humiliated. Okay, so let's try to look back at their culture instead of our culture. Sometimes we have dreams, don't we? Where we, we're going to school and we're in our underwear and we can't find anything to put on. I've had people tell me this all the time. I had this horrible dream. Everybody was laughing at me. Or even worse, that's a dream that usually means that you're struggling with some type of vulnerability in your life. I had a little dream counseling from the pulpit. What it does is it sloughs off our hypocrisy, our excuses, our facades. It all goes with that butcher's knife. It cuts the fat right off and lays it bare and open, and God sees everything. Verse 14. I'll just say this as well. I had a gentleman come up to me last Sunday, and he talked about how there were certain things in the message that moved him, and, and he's being gravitated towards the Word and, and what's going on and, and the teachings, and, and he came back this Sunday. And I said, I'll wait to talk to you next Sunday because we're going to talk about uh, Hebrews 4. Uh, 12 through 13 about the word of God cutting through everything see now it starts to make sense to you because God's word exposes and reveals it tells us things about ourselves it tells us that this is what I've always been looking for although I try to fill it with money and relationships and partying and, and stuff it's right here this is wh and that's where my wife and I were we didn't when we came to church we weren't at rock bottom we were doing pretty well but we started hearing the word from the pulpit. Pastor Lloyd was faithful to teach us. And uh, we we're like, wow, this is what we've been looking for our whole lives. Didn't even know it. Here it is. And we went up to receive the Lord. Verse 14, last few verses. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
So we may have been convicted in the beginning, but now we're encouraged. That's the beauty of God's word. We need to be convicted. We need to slough off things that don't belong on us spiritually. But we also need to be encouraged and lifted up. And here it is. Because of what Jesus did, let us never stop trusting him. Let us never uh, drift. Let us never deny him. He is the source of our life and our purpose. Furthermore, this is the God who didn't just stay in heaven because he could. He came down in the form, our form, and lived as we did. He was tempted. He was pressed. He was tested as God in human form. Yet he did it without sin. And he showed us that we can have victory. We can have victory over sin. We can have victory in our lives. You know, we all looked, we look to Jesus and, and we, we adore him. And we, you know, our services are surrounded. You know, we surround him in our services and our praises. But here was somebody who grew up poor, who worked who uh, was beaten, who was ostracized, who was slaughtered and died a, a slow and painful death. But we look at him as our savior. So what does that say? That no matter what our circumstances are, we can still have victory in our lives, can't, can't we? He understands me. I love that about him. 16, I'll read it again. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now bring yourself back into the old days of the monarchies. You know, the kingdoms, the kings, the queens. They ruled the land. And a lot of this, like you had your, your king had this one throne room that was grandiose, that had guards, that had gold, that was magnificent. It was ornately decorated. And you couldn't just, hey, you know, walk into the throne room. Hey, king, what's up? You know, let's, let's play jacks or something. Let's play chess. They kill you. So think about that. Think about the, the person who's reading this. And what, what, what the author of Hebrews says, but God is a different type of king. He has a different type of kingdom. We can just come at any time and, and go boldly and, and ask for grace, for mercy. You know, pour out our feelings. I love that. You know, it could be three in the morning. And I, I just, I don't say... Uh, can you hear me now? God, are you there? You know, send me something. I just start talking. I just start praying. It could be 12 in the afternoon. It could be rush hour. I don't think, well, God's busy. He's got a lot of accidents to contend with. I just know I start talking. He hears me. I live this because I need to live this because I couldn't be your pastor without this. But here is a king, a potentate, that billions of people at the same time could, could just start looking up and, and talking to him, and he hears you. And you can come to him boldly. He loves you. People come to me and say, Pastor Joe, pray for me. I say, I will. However, you, can, you also have access to the throne room, throne room. It isn't just us in ministry. And you can pray for others. And you can teach others to pray. Now think about the backdrop of this. These Hebrew Christians were tempted to fall away, to recoil in fear because of persecution. And he's saying, the author of Hebrews is saying, no, but you have so much more. No matter what's going on in your life, you have the power of the Almighty God. His line is always open to you. There's encouragement for you. I'm going to leave it with this one scripture, and I'm going to just go over it topically as we close. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. There's that word again. Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is a combination of mental and spiritual. When you look at this word, it means come to me when you're fatigued, when you're overburdened, when you're guilt-ridden. How many come to church and, and they, they stuff their past, but you don't know what I've done, I've been, and you don't know what I'm into now. They're guilt-ridden. They're doing it in their own strength. They're tired. The world has whooped them. And I've got to tell you, I've had surgeries before, and I've had to take painkillers, and you know, when I take the painkillers, I'm like, whoa, now I know why people do this, because you don't really care if the house is burning down. You know what I'm saying? And why do so many people turn to this, right? You're laughing. You've ever had a doctor gives you something, you're like, oh, I don't really care what happens at this point. And then when you come off of it, you're back in life. But Jesus says, let me be that. Don't, don't take the drugs. Don't be uh, you know, drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to help you with that. And he doesn't even say, don't work. He says, take my yoke. What does that mean? We still have to do things in this world. We don't have to be lazy. But my, my, I have a lighter uh, yoke. This is an easy yoke. Check, try this on. Oh, that feels good. It doesn't even feel like I'm doing anything as I'm pulling that cart. Wow, me and you, Jesus, we're yoked together. And my burden is light. But you will find rest for your souls. So this morning, brothers and sisters, don't get caught up in the finer points and overthink what he's saying in this chapter. But understand the big picture. God wants you to enter into his rest. And when you enter in that salvation rest, he also wants you to be at peace with him, your surroundings, your trials, your temptations. Man, just some scriptures, they just, it works on you. Not necessarily to have to be a part of the social Christian scene. Well, I'm part of this church now. What? You don't have to do anything. Well, I have to invite 15 people from the church onto Facebook. There's no requirements. You don't have to be part of the social scene. shouldn't be part of the carnal Christian scene. happens in some Calvary chapels too. Somebody asked me recently why I'm not on the radio because I say things like that. But it's, let's just be honest. It's not to go and be part of the culture and, and play the phony Christian game. Because what happens is now you go back into that bondage again. And I know people who are like that. They're in the Christian community and they're struggling. Well, this person's going to think, I've got to act this way, I've got to dress this way. That's garbage. Enter into the Lord's rest. All these other things are not mentioned in Scripture. So I want to encourage you this morning that you think about what's being said here. You think about the repetition in the Word and that you enter His rest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank You for the Word.